Annalise, why did the bald man draw rabbits on his head? I don't know, Blake. Why did he? Because, from a distance, they look like hairs. (laughs) Hmm. And welcome back to Spot Diagnosis, a podcast about all things dermatological, brought to you by the Skin Health Institute in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Dr Annalise Willems. I'm a GP, medical educator and research fellow at the Skin Health Institute. And I am Dr Blake Mumford, Education and Research Fellow at the Institute. In this episode, we are once again exploring hair. In our first episode, we focused on the structure and function of hair, in addition to causes of diffuse hair loss. In today's episode, we'll be focusing on causes of patchy hair loss. As a reminder for our GP listeners, Spot Diagnosis has been accredited with RACGP and ACRAM. There is one CPD point per episode, so approximately 9 to 10 points per season. All you need to do is subscribe to the podcast, listen to all the episodes and fill in a brief evaluation form on spotdiagnosis.org.au. That was spotdiagnosis.org.au. We are especially lucky today to have two experts in all things hair joining us. In the studio with us today, we have Dr. Jack Green and Dr. Jane Lee. Jack and Jane are specialist dermatologists with a particular interest in hair disorders. They help run the Hair Disorders Clinic at the Skin Health Institute. Dr. Jane Lee and Dr. Jack Green, welcome back to the show. It's good to be back. Thank you. As we comb through all things hair, are there any myths involved in hair loss? There is a story that being bald makes men more virile. My response to that is no comment. Oh, sure, Jack. I wonder why you say that. (laughs) I've heard of a myth that cutting hair makes it grow back thicker or faster. This is sadly not true, but at least a trim will get rid of split ends. Jack, you also have a personal story you'd like to share about us with your experience during COVID-19 lockdown. Yeah, well, during COVID lockdown, I learned a new life skill. Necessity required that I cut and colour my wife's hair. And she told me she liked it. But she promptly sprinted to the nearest hairdresser when they opened again. Maybe not being entirely truthful there. (laughs) At least you've got a new skill. (laughs) Today, we're focusing on the causes of patchy hair loss. What are some common causes of this? Alopecia areata, by far, is the most common one, affecting about 3% of the population. And 20% of these have a relative with it. It's commonly mild with one or two patches, and all hairdressers would have seen cases. But other causes of patchy hair loss is scarring alopecia, commonly conditions such as lichen planar polaris, discoid lupus erythematosus, alopecia secondary to injury, or rarely an infiltrative process involving the scalp skin. And in kids, one needs to consider tinea capitis and also trichotillomania, which is actually more common than you think. In the last episode of this podcast, remember that we had earlier divided hair loss into scarring and non-scarring alopecia. Could you recap what this means? Scarring means the follicle itself has been destroyed, so there's no chance of regrowth. And non-scarring means that has not occurred, so there is some chance of recovery. Do you have any tips on how to tell these apart? You can differentiate these clinically and dermatoscopically or or with trichoscopy. There's a lack of follicular openings in scarring alopecia. It can be difficult to differentiate at times. And there's a concept of pseudo-scarring seen in androgenetic alopecia. 
but it's important to get the right diagnosis for the most appropriate treatment. Let's start with the most common, alopecia areata. What is it? Alopecia areata is a non-scarring form of alopecia that commonly presents with circular or ovoid patches of hair loss. Who is affected by alopecia areata? Alopecia areata can affect children and adults, men and women, of all ethnicities, but the majority of patients are generally quite young. If a patient presents with patchy hair loss, what questions do you ask them? We should ask about the onset, the time course, and any symptoms such as itch or burning or pain. Have they had episodes before? Is there a family history of alopecia areata or autoimmune disease such as thyroid disease? Finally, we need to know how they are coping and how the condition is affecting them. And what examination findings are important? It is important to establish the extent of hair loss and whether other hair-bearing areas are affected, such as the eyebrows or eyelashes. Exclamation mark hairs, which are short stubby hairs that are thin proximally and thicker distally, are best seen on dermoscopy of the scalp, also known as trichoscopy. These hairs are pathognomonic for alopecia areata. Various nail abnormalities may be seen in severe cases of alopecia areata as well, including pitting, rough nails, or onycholysis, which is the technical name for lifting of the nail plate off the nail bed. It is the first skin tip of the episode. Exclamation mark hairs are pathognomonic for alopecia areata. The nails can also be affected in alopecia areata. Are there different subtypes of alopecia areata? Why, yes, Blake. Apart from patchy alopecia areata, there are alopecia totalis, which involves the whole scalp, alopecia universalis, which involves the whole body, ophiasis, involving a band of hair at the occiput, cisypho, the reverse of ophiasis, as well as diffuse alopecia areata, including the overnight graying variant. What is overnight graying? That's when you realise that self-isolation is suddenly not a bad option. Overnight graying refers to a rare form of diffuse alopecia areata, where all the pigmented hairs on the head are affected at once and they fall out in a short span of time, leaving behind only the non-pigmented hairs. It seems like the person goes from having coloured hair to grey hair overnight. Indeed. I heard this occurred to Marie Antoinette, who reportedly went grey the night before she was beheaded. Speaking of cutting things, should I do any particular investigations when I'm concerned about possible alopecia areata? Alopecia areata is usually a clinical diagnosis, although a biopsy may be performed for atypical cases where a diagnosis is unclear, such as in diffuse alopecia areata. It is recommended that all patients be screened for thyroid dysfunction, though. What are the treatment options for alopecia areata? If the patch is small, in the right patient, treatment can be conservative, as about 50% of the time, the hair will actually regrow on its own. First-line management options can include topical steroids and psychological support. Explaining that the condition is non-scarring is very reassuring. What if a patient has multiple patches and they are growing? In this instance, it's obviously much more concerning. If there are only a few patches, we can consider intralesional steroid injections. If there is rapid progression, then we sometimes use oral corticosteroids. 
In severe alopecia areata, adjunct treatments can include topical minoxidil or cosmetic camouflage, for example, wigs, false eyelashes, glasses or eyebrow tattoos. Say I have a patient who has a 50 cent size patch of alopecia areata towards the front of their scalp. Jane, can you explain how you would inject in this circumstance? I'd first take a baseline photograph. You want to use intralesional triamcinolone acetonide, about 2.5 milligrams per mil, with a small gauge needle, say 30 gauge, uh, with a Lurilox syringe. It is useful to use vibration as a technique to reduce pain when injecting, and I would inject in a grid pattern, including the border of the patch as well, aiming for the intradermal space. For a 50 cent piece size, I'd aim to separate the injections about a centimetre apart, probably about four injections in total. We would space injections about four to six weeks apart to help gauge response and to avoid inducing a side effect of the steroids such as atrophy, telangiectasia or erythema. Skin tip number two. Alopecia areata will frequently undergo spontaneous remission. For limited disease, first-line therapies are topical and injected corticosteroids. And Jane, what do we do if intralesional triamcinolone isn't working? If the intralesional injections aren't working, we would typically try systemic steroids, such as prednisolone, 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, tapered over six to eight weeks. Alternatively, we can also consider steroid-sparing agents, such as methotrexate, azathioprine, cyclosporin, mycophenolate mofetil, or JAK inhibitors. We can also consider topical immunotherapy with a compound called DCP, but this is a specialist treatment. There's been some excitement in the last couple of years about the JAK inhibitors. Can you tell us a bit about them? JAK inhibitors are immunosuppressants. They are tablets taken by mouth. They work by blocking JAK-STAT signaling in cells, which is a common signaling pathway involved in many immune processes. Although evidence is still early, there have been many very promising results, with reported efficacy rates of about 70%, and 50% of responders report good hair regrowth. There are two major downsides, though. First, the alopecia areata appears to recur when the JAK inhibitors are stopped. And second, the medication is not on the PBS for this indication as yet, so it is currently very costly to access. As a GP, when should I be considering referring alopecia areata? Please refer if the alopecia is extensive, rapidly progressive, or not regrowing with topical steroids. Alopecia areata can also cause significant psychological distress, so shared care with a mental health professional may be required. Let's move on to the scarring alopecias now. Are these common? No, they're not common, although what many dermatologists have noticed is that the frequency of frontal fibrosing alopecia has been increasing. But the uh, scarring alopecias can not only occur on the scalp, they can also occur on the beard area, and sometimes they're associated with other scarred lesions on the face or the ears. Examples apart from the frontal fibrosing alopecia are lichen planopolaris and discoid lupus erythematosus. So what is discoid lupus erythematosus, also known as DLE? Well, DLE is an inflammatory scarring process that leads to, in hair-bearing areas, a scarring alopecia. 
And what should I be looking for on examination if I suspect DLE? One sees inflammatory erythematous plaques with adherent scale, plugging of follicles, atrophy and dispigmentation. And like I said before, not just uh, may not just be in the hair-bearing areas, but might, might also be commonly on the face or the ears. And um, you might see antigen hairs pulled easily at the edges of active lesions. Uh, in this country, we see more lichen planar pilaris than we do discoid lupus erythematosus, as it tends to be more common in, in certain ethnic groups. And is diagnosis of DLE a clinical diagnosis? It's a good idea to take a biopsy to confirm your suspicions. Uh, this would typically be a three to four millimeter punch biopsy of the active edge of the lesion. Sometimes it's better to take a, a larger biopsy to capture more follicles, depending on uh, the plaques that you have to work with. If you're considering a diagnosis of DLE, you need to be very clear that only 5% of patients with DLE actually have systemic lupus erythematosus, so we don't confuse the patient. And you have to emphasize the majority of the time it's only a skin disorder, so the chance of having SLE is low, but you still need to do a workup to assess for this. So this would include an ANA, an ENA, lupus anticoagulant, and C3 and C4 levels. I know that in SLE, you can get exacerbation with sun exposure. Is the same true for DLE? Uh, yeah, DLE is associated with photosensitivity, and certainly part of the treatment is to have strict photoprotection. Absolutely. If I suspect someone has DLE, what should I do as GP? Well, I think it's important to refer, and it's important to get maximum appropriate treatment ASAP to minimise the result in alopecia. So the referral actually warrants a call to get the patient in to uh, your referring dermatologist. I would consider this urgent because once you've lost those hairs, it's essentially too late and you can save it with early treatment. I think it's time for another skin tip. DLE scarring is permanent unless there is early intervention. These patients should be referred urgently for dermatologist care. You mentioned photoprotection as sort of like a non-pharmacological intervention. Is there anything else that you can do to prevent hair loss in DLE? Well, in terms of managing hair loss in DLE, uh, it really depends on the extent and the rapidity of onset of this scarring alopecia. I very much use intralesional steroids in all active areas, and sometimes that can be a significant volume, but I think that's important. I use potent topical steroids, courses of oral prednisolone initially because... A speed of treatment is important. And then I follow on with hydroxychloroquine most oftenly. And sometimes I need to use other steroid sparing agents. For example, cyclosporin. Um, hydroxychloroquine can be a bit slow to act. Other immunosuppressives can be used. It just depends on the response and how aggressive the clinical course is. And of course, strict sunscreen use is very important. There's another patchy form of scarring alopecia you touched on called lichen planar pilaris also known as LPP. Jack, can you tell us a bit more about this? Well, LPP presents as slowly enlarging patches occurring most commonly on the vertex of the scalp and the crown. There is a related condition which occurs on the hairline, which I mentioned, and occurs mostly in females called frontal fibrosing alopecia. There is often associated pruritus or irritation, but this is not always the case. And the progression can actually be insidious. Sometimes the clinical course can occur more rapidly. Prior to being lost, the follicles seen at the edge of the patches display perifollicular scale and erythema. And when active, antigen hairs can be pulled from these edges. 
there is a very wide spectrum of clinical behaviours within this condition. And how is LPP treated? Well, it can respond to treatment with intralesional oral steroids and steroid sparing agents such as hydroxychloroquine, but it can also be very resistant to treatment. And it can also spontaneously burn out and stop progressing. Hopefully this occurs at an early stage, but sometimes it progresses to involve much of the scalp surface area, significantly affecting the patient's appearance. At times, other non-scalp hairs can be involved and infrequently a related condition affecting the skin and also the oral mucosa or nails called lichen planus may also be present. We're on the home run, moving on to the final patchy alopecia. What would make you suspect tinea capitis? Well, first of all, it is a diagnosis made in children and very rarely in adults. It is more common in certain ethnic groups, for example, in African children. It is not just alopecia, you see inflammation, erythema, scaling and edema. On dermoscopy, you see dystrophic or disrupted hairs with coiling of residual hair shafts. Often, but not always, there may be more than one sibling affected. You must always ask about pets living with a family. And how is it diagnosed? In this instance, we diagnose it using skin scrapings and hair plucks for fungal microscopy and culture. A woods lamp can also be useful, as some forms of tinea capitis may fluoresce. Why is it important to ask about pets living with a family? Often, pets are the carriers of the tinea, especially dogs and cats, and occasionally guinea pigs. And you don't always realise that, and you really got to take them to the vet for a proper professional assessment. How do you treat someone with tinea capitis? I usually use systemic antifungal medication. I start with griseofulvin at a dose of 20 milligrams per kilogram. We need to be aware of potential side effects, which include photosensitivity, irritability in a child, gastric or bowel issues. The taste might not be too good. But you can crush the tablet into ice cream or juice, or you can actually have it made into a syrup with a compounding chemist, but that will probably cost more. I also get the whole family to regularly shampoo with a ketoconazole shampoo. No sharing of towels and sometimes other systemics such as oral terbinafen may be used, but that might be more expensive because it's not on PBS. There's a more severe form of tinea capitis which can be confused with a bacterial infection. Can you tell us a bit about that, Jane? One of the most severe forms of tinea capitis is known as carrion. It is a diagnosis that often fools a lot of doctors as it presents with intense inflammation, edema and discharge. It can lead to scarring alopecia if it is left for a long period of time. The classic story is of it being treated with drainage or other surgical procedures while failing to respond to oral antibiotics. What is the prognosis of tinea capitis? Prognosis is actually generally good. Most children don't end up with permanent alopecia, but it can take some time to get that follicular regrowth. And you should also be aware that tinea capitis can actually sometimes spontaneously resolve, and there may have been a history of it in the siblings of the patient, but the siblings uh, don't have it anymore. There's one final condition I wanted to touch on. Could you tell us a little bit about trichotillomania? I've come across this several times in general practice. One case that springs to mind was a patient who came in with this thin-looking ponytail, except for when she removed her hair elastic, which revealed her entire scalp had been plucked clear, except for the hairs circumferentially 
making up the ponytail. I understand it is a mental disorder which involves recurrent compulsive plucking of hair from the scalp or other parts of the body. Uh, yes, that's correct. Uh, I'll just mention a few things about trichotillomania. So it's more common than you realise. If you have a child with alopecia that is a bit unusual looking, doesn't quite make sense, you may want to consider the possibility that the child may be pulling at their hair. If you're considering that, then you might want to broach that with the child or the parents if it's appropriate. And there might be a possibility of discussing whether the child's under particular stress or been bullying. It depends on the circumstances of the consultation, of course. Jack, could you tell us a story about a child that you've had who's presented with trichotillomania? I've got one memorable case where I had a child with unusual alopecia and I made the diagnosis of trichotillomania and I was in clinic with some other doctors who have an interest in alopecia and called them in and they agreed. And then the mother was with the child and came to the realisation that the child's alopecia had started when she had forced that child to stop biting his nails. And she looked at him and she said, listen, I don't care if you want to bite your nails, just don't pull your hair. And right in the consultation, he started chewing all his nail nails off. So he obviously had been repressed by it. All right, we've written some clinical scenarios to test our experts in our hirsute. Oh, oh, sorry, that was a pursuit of knowledge. Our first scenario is a shout out to our rural and remote listeners. In this scenario, you're working in a clinic in rural Victoria, one hour from the nearest regional centre. A 31-year-old local male presents with a 50-cent size patch of hair loss in his beard, which has occurred over the past month. On examination, you note exclamation mark hairs. There are no other areas of hair loss to his body. What should we do? Well, if the GP is confident, he can try injecting intralesional steroids such as triamcinolone or celestone chronidose. And if he's not confident, then you should try to get a dermatology appointment. If it doesn't really bother the patient, then they need to be aware that at least 50% may recover. So you can actually wait and it doesn't lead to scarring alopecia. If it was, however, a large area that was more than a 50 cent piece, then you might want to consider a systemic corticosteroid. All right, next patient is a 25-year-old, previously well woman, presents shedding handfuls of hair from her scalp over the last two months. She has multiple patches of hair loss throughout her scalp, affecting about 30% of her scalp hairs. She has lost half of her left eyebrow. She is incredibly distressed. What should we do? This is a very challenging situation. I would examine her for the presence of exclamation mark hairs, thereby making the diagnosis. Psychological support is important. Given the rapidity, I'd consider oral prednisolone and intralesional steroid injections. I'd follow this patient up closely and consider early initiation of a steroid-sparing agent. The next one is for you, Jack. A five-year-old boy is brought in with an asymptomatic solitary patch of hair loss from his parietal scalp, measuring two centimetres in diameter. There are exclamation mark hairs. It is smooth and you diagnosed alopecia areata. What should we do? I would initially try intermittent potent topical steroids, in this case betamethasone dipropionate, 0.05% in cream every second day. If this fails, then I would apply a topical anaesthetic such as MLAR or an equivalent for 45 minutes and then try to inject a steroid 
without him, of course, seeing the needle first. That concludes our second episode on hair loss. We have scaled the frizzy heights, straightened our understanding, highlighted the cutting edge treatments. Thank you, Jack and Jane, for coming in and sharing your expertise with us. We'd also like to thank Associate Professor Alvin Chong at the Skin Health Institute for creative oversight, as well as the education team at the Skin Health Institute. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Spot Diagnosis. Remember, these podcasts are not meant to replace medical advice. If you have a skin condition that requires attention, we strongly encourage you to see your medical practitioner. For listeners who want more information on the subject, a transcript of this episode and links to other resources can be found on our website, spotdiagnosis.org.au. That's spotdiagnosis.org.au. Please share Spot Diagnosis with your friends and colleagues. Rate and review us. Let us know what you think. We would really appreciate your feedback and any suggestions. 